lives. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that I pray. Amen. All right. So, this morning we are going to continue um, on in... Oh, you can be seated, sorry. <laughs> I always forget to say that. I just assume that y'all will just do whatever you want. Um, this morning we are going to continue through our sermon series, um, Unstoppable God, through the book of Acts. We will be looking at Acts 25 and 26. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can on your Bibles or devices or whatever. The Bibles are spread out, as always, on the floor if you need them. And you can use those as well. If you do not own a Bible, by all means, take that with you. But um, Now, I will say, has August snuck up on anybody else? Golly, I can't... <laughs> It's about to be August, and I can't believe it, but we will be finishing this sermon series actually next week. So next week will be the last Unstoppable God sermon through Acts, and that will spur us on to our launch at Briarwood. Our, our soft launch is next week, August 2nd, and then our public launch will be August 9th, that next week. So if you would, I would love for you guys to join me in the next two weeks in praying for that praying for people to come, praying for lost people to be saved, praying that God would move. We are very excited and look forward to seeing what God is going to do in our new location. So, this morning, I'm going to pray again. I know that's kind of awkward because I just did, but I'm going to pray again. If you guys would bow with me and pray for me, I'll pray for you, and I'll pray for the word uh, that we are getting ready to look at this morning. Father, again, we come to you thanking you that you are God, thanking you that you have revealed yourself in your word, and that through your word we can know you more and we can know more about what you have called us to be and to do as a church and as believers. We, we love you for that. We thank you that um, you have revealed exactly what you wish to reveal to us and that the rest uh, is up to you. And may we have faith and belief in that. And may we, as we go forward this morning, may you open our hearts to hear your word, to hear your gospel, and to hear your truth. Move me aside, move me out of the way, because I am just a man and allow your word to speak for itself. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we're going to look at Acts 25 and 26, but as always, we've got to look back, kind of recap a little bit to see how we got to this point. So if you remember far enough back, two weeks ago, we talked about Paul on his way to Jerusalem, and we talked about how he was being warned uh, by people, and the Holy Spirit was kind of telling him, look, it's not going to go well if you go to Jerusalem. But that is where Paul felt called to go. And he said he does not value his life enough over his calling by God to do this. So he is going forth to Jerusalem. So he does. And then he, we saw last week how he got arrested. We saw that he was on trial for the first time in front of Felix, the governor. And he, uh, looked, he was looking into basically why Paul was on trial Paul was it's seemingly on trial for treason against the culture. He was just not fitting in. The thing about Paul is he wasn't really trying to fit in. He knew the gospel was offensive. He knows the gospel is folly to those who do not believe. He knows that the gospel is going to cause friction because it calls people to respond. But he was not trying to soften the message. And to lessen that offense would be to weaken the message of the gospel. And Paul was unwilling to do that. And we discussed how this is an example of how we must speak in the culture. We must call sin, sin, but accompanying that message of calling sin, sin, we cannot leave off that we have the remedy for that sin, and that is the gospel. The only remedy for sin is Jesus. So this week, we're going to look through some characters, basically. It's going to be kind of like a character study as we go through. There's a few names in chapters 25 and 26 that we've not come across before, and we're going to look at those. But the first character, we will be looking kind of back and in chapter 25 a little bit as well, is Felix. 
So Felix was the governor that Paul was in front of last week as we kind of wrapped up chapters 24. So he left off. Felix was admitting behind closed doors that Paul really hadn't done anything that would constitute this trial. He, would, he definitely didn't deserve any punishment, but he didn't really know what to do. So he says in chapter 24, verses 22 and 23, says, But Felix, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So we see here Felix is kind of in limbo. He doesn't know what to do. He sees Paul has done nothing wrong. He also sees the public outcry that something needs to be done. So he, he doesn't know what to do. So he basically just puts it off and says, well, when this guy shows up, we'll decide your case. But then we see something very interesting in the next verses, chapters, or chapter 24 still, but verses 24 and 26. So while he's waiting for this guy to show up, Lysias, it says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So we see here, Felix is a Roman. This is who Paul has been appearing in front of this whole time, is Roman uh, tribunes, Roman governors. They are, they are Roman, not Jewish. And we, we know from extra-biblical uh, material that Felix was very ruthless, he, he did not hold back. He was very strict. He was very ruthless. He was Nero before Nero was Nero. There was actually a time in Nero's political career, if you know anything about it, it did not end well for him. But his fir the first part of Nero's career, he was actually very docile. He, he wasn't super against Christians. He was kind of in this middle ground of just let everybody do what they wanted to do. And then towards the end of his career, something happened and he became very against Christians and if you know anything about church history, we know that did not end well. He was the, the cause for many Christians to die. But before Nero came along, this guy, Felix, was him. He was very against Christians. Uh, he was very ruthless, and he was known for this. So once again, we see that it is only by the grace of God that Felix did not see Paul the first time and go, yep, it doesn't matter what you did. You're guilty. We're going to condemn you. We're going to kill you. We see the grace of God moving and keeping Paul alive and keeping in with God's plan as to what he is going to do with Paul. Now it says Paul, when Felix would come visit him, he wanted to speak to him about faith in Jesus. He had questions. He didn't understand why Paul was so adamant that this was true, even in the light of all of this friction. And Paul spoke to him specifically about three things. It says he spoke to him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. So righteousness, that's Jesus. Self-control, that's obedience to Jesus. And the coming judgment is you better get right with Jesus or something bad's going to happen. So even to the man who is responsible for Paul not being free, Paul would not pass up any opportunity to speak to him about the gospel. For two years, it says, if you notice, it says when two years had elapsed. So Paul is in prison waiting for a decision for two years. It's like the Tom Brady case. We don't know what's going to happen there. We've been waiting for months and months, and it's like the NFL is just not going to say anything. This is what happened to Paul, is he's waiting two years, and while he's waiting, this guy just keeps coming to visit him and ask him about Jesus. So what does Paul do? Instead of pouting and sulking and whining and asking to be free, or even offering him money like Felix wanted him to do to be free, he just kept telling him about the gospel. 
Now, it is obvious upon hearing the gospel that he was intrigued because he went back numerous times. It tells us that in Scripture. He wanted to talk to Paul. He wanted to converse with Paul. And we see Paul never pass up the opportunity. And we have to assume that at some point in all of this, however many times he heard the gospel, that he was almost persuaded to believe. Or else, why would he have kept going back with questions? If he wasn't at least considering things, he would have just written it off the first time and never gone to talk to Paul again. So we have to assume the Holy Spirit was working on him in some way, shape, or form. But there was just something he treasured more, whether it was his power, his money, his prestige, whatever it was in Felix's life, he could not be fully persuaded to turn to Jesus. So then, at the very end there, it says, Portia's Festus, uh, succeeded Felix. Felix did not go out well. He did not finish his career well. We won't go into that, but it, it turned out bad, and he was basically uprooted from his position as governor, and then Festus was put in. So we meet in this next section, starting in chapter 25, verse 1, we meet two more characters, Festus and the Jewish accusers. Now, most people believe that the Jewish accusers were about 40 people. I think sometimes when we read this, we assume it's just the mob of thousands upon thousands of people gathering around Paul. It was usually about 40 people. Now, they represented thousands upon thousands of people that agreed with them. They were kind of the ambassadors or the court advocates for a larger group. But it was about 40 people there, so they all were within earshot. They could have heard what Paul had to say while he was up in front of Festus. And then also, again, we meet Festus. So we're introduced to them, and we see Festus was actually very prompt. He was known for being a good leader. He was known for being decisive. He was known by worldly standards, to be a good leader. See here in chapter 25, verse 1, after being there for three days, Festus is already hearing about this guy named Paul. He's already trying to get rid of the case. He's, he's been there for three days, and he's already trying to get this off the books. Okay, he was hearing from the Jews, and they were asking him to send Paul back to Jerusalem where he had just come from as a favor. But why? Let's look at verse 3. Why were they asking him for this? So asking as a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So, let's get this clear real quick. The Jews were accusing Paul of breaking the law. So they were trying to uphold the law by taking Paul to trial. And in the midst of that, these law abiders said, send him back to Jerusalem, we're going to kill him. So they were set to uphold the law, and yet they forgot that somewhere in the law, I think I've read, thou shalt not kill. I, th I think it's in there, and yet that's exactly what they're planning to do. They're getting onto Paul, and on his case, and in his case, because he's broken the law, and yet their plan is to break the law. And it is here we see the corrupting effects of religion. Now, before we get too carried away, I don't want anyone here to think, I want to be very clear I am not against religion. This is not a Jesus versus religion debate because I think that is that I don't believe that to be mutually exclusive things. Christianity is a religion. Following Jesus is a religion. But what we see here is the corrupting aspects of religion when God is removed or replaced as the head of that religion. Following Jesus is not only a religion. It is a life. It is giving him everything. It is worshiping him above all things. But here we see when God has either been removed or replaced in religion. And we must be diligent to never fall into this trap. It is a slippery slope by putting something else in God's place and then getting way, way off track. 
See, you, you may get some worldly people who will say, well, isn't any religion better than no religion? Wouldn't it be better if everyone adhered to some form of religion instead of nothing? And to that I would say, probably not. See, you see, if you go back through history, religion has caused a lot of problems. And it is when that religion, whatever it may be, has placed something above God. They have placed the law above God. They have placed land above God. They have placed their belief system above what God has revealed and what God has said. And this is what we see with the Jews. They have placed the law of God above the giver of that law, God himself. They have replaced God with rules, with regulations, with rituals, and that those, were, those things were put in place to point people back to himself, and yet they have somehow swapped it, and they think that God is pointing them to the law, that the law is supreme. It would be as if we worship this book. This book is infallible. This book is God's words, I believe that, but we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And somehow the Jews have misplaced their worship of God and placed it into the law. Now we also see many people nowadays who will write off religion of all kinds because they've had a bad experience with someone who is religious, right? I'm sure everyone in this place today has had a conversation with somebody that has said, well, so-and-so did this, and he was supposedly a Christian, or so-and-so did this, and he was supposedly this, that, or the other, or did you hear about that pastor the other day that got busted for dealing meth out of his van, or whatever it is. You somehow, they've all had some kind of bad experience, and they write it off. They lump all the people of that particular faith together, and then it becomes an obstacle for anyone of that faith that ever wants to talk to them about it again to overcome before they can even really make any headway. You hear it all the time. Religious people are hypocrites, and I want to be very clear here today that that is 100% true. Everyone in this room, including myself, except maybe Nora, is a hypocrite. We say things, and we don't follow through, and will, sorry, and we don't do them the way that we said. <laughs> oh, <I didn't. laughs> we don't do things the way we say we're going to do them. Every person that adheres to any religion is a hypocrite. I've said it before. If you invite someone to Mission Church and they say, they say this, well, all religious people, all Christians I've ever been around are hypocrites, I want you to respond to them, yep, that's our church too. Every person from the pastor to the guests are hypocrites and that is why we need Jesus just like you do that is why we are telling you about Jesus because we were hypocrites we are hypocrites and yet Jesus has changed us and Jesus has forgiven us do not respond with well not our church come to our church because he's going to show up day one and see a bunch of hypocrites and go I thought he said that nobody here was hypocritical and that's simply not true but you see in any other religion saying someone is a hypocrite is a damning statement if you adhere to a religion that requires perfection, then to be anything but perfect is something that cannot be corrected. In a religion with no mercy, which is pretty much every religion outside of Christianity, if there is no mercy for your mess-ups, then you better be perfect. And if someone sees you not being perfect, that automatically, why would you want to join that religion? There's no mercy for my screw-ups there. Why am I going to be there? And yet, here in Christianity, we readily admit that we are hypocrites. We readily admit that we mess up. We readily admit that we sin, or at least we should readily admit it. 
But we also readily admit that without mercy, we are done for. And that is where Jesus comes in. And that is the gospel. We have no hope outside of Jesus. We have no hope outside of the gospel message. So what I hope to make clear today is that none of us should ever use the excuse that I'm going to wait till I'm good enough to start sharing the gospel. I've heard this excuse from people. Well, I'll get my life right, and then I'll start telling people about Jesus. Then it's never going to happen. You're never going to share about Jesus. If that's, if that's your, what you're waiting for, if you're waiting to not be a hypocrite anymore, then you're never going to tell anyone about Jesus. Paul was the chief among sinners, and he shared over and over and over again. I'm sure hypocrite was probably one of the nicer things that people said about him. He was ridiculed and persecuted his whole life after Jesus came into his life. And he did not care about saving his own life. When he's asked to give a defense in these last six chapters, he just keeps preaching the gospel. He doesn't even really say anything about himself, like, well, you should let me go for this reason or this reason. He just preaches the gospel. Look, I was this, now I'm this, and it's because of Jesus. He knows he has a captive audience. He knows they're not going anywhere because they're there for him. So he is willing to share the gospel at all costs. So we must never think that the gospel is to show our worth, our perfection, or our hard work, because it's not. It is only to point to the one with ultimate worth and ultimate perfection. The gospel, among other things, is meant to show our weakness, not our ability to sanctify ourselves. If it was that, then we would be preaching an entirely different message. We would be telling people, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be better. When we're not telling people that, we're telling people, look, Jesus meets you where you are. He will make you better, but you cannot do it on your own. You can never be perfect. You are never going to draw others to yourself by being perfect. Because we can't do it. But what will draw others is they see you being weak not that you should sin on purpose just to prove this point, but they see your weakness and they say, I can identify with that. I thought these people were perfect, but I see that they're not, and yet they still worship this Jesus. But the Jews simply could not grasp this. They would not accept that salvation was outside of their works and what they had to do to get there. They refused to hear that Jesus was the fulfillment of their law. They continued to obey the law and Jesus came along and said, look, I am the fulfillment of this law. Not that you shouldn't obey parts of it again. We won't go into that today because that's a long story. But I've come to fulfill that law. I've been the one that the prophets are talking about. They heard it who knows how many times from Paul. And he wasn't the only one preaching it. So who knows how many times these Jewish people heard it. And yet they were simply almost persuaded. We see this most clearly in Acts 17 when Paul was preaching to the Areopagus. Some were persuaded to believe, some wanted to hear more, and some simply rejected his message. But sadly, almost persuaded is to be totally lost. To be almost saved is to be no saved at all, or not saved at all. But at least they had to respond. They could not remain neutral. The one thing the gospel never does is nothing. Once you hear it, you cannot remain neutral about it. You either write it off as stupid or unbelievable or I'm not going to believe that or you believe. There is no neutral ground. Well, I heard it. It doesn't really matter because to preach the true gospel has eternal consequences. So to say that it does not matter cannot be true. So at least the Jews, even though 
we see that many of them were simply almost persuaded. At least they had heard the gospel. And then we see another character, Festus. We see Festus here. He's, again, by all worldly standards, he is a good leader. He's prompt. He's decisive. He's strict. He wanted to hear the case to finally get it over with. So he heard from the Jews like we just saw, and then he heard from Paul. Now, in verse 8 of chapter 25, Paul gives a short defense. It, he blatantly says, this is all he says, I have done nothing wrong. So he's, he's finally blatantly saying, look, I've done nothing wrong. And look at the first word of verse 9. So he says that he's done nothing wrong. And then verse 9, but Festus. We cannot overlook this word. If it were a different word here connecting these two sentences, maybe we could overlook it. But the fact that it says, but Festus means that Paul, okay, Paul has clearly stated something, right? He's clearly stated, I have done nothing wrong. This puts the ball in Festus's court to either say, yes, you have, or you're, you know what? You're right. He's heard the charges. Festus is a diligent leader. He has read all of the reports. He has heard all of the reports from Felix and from all the people that have been there. So he knows this case very well. He's definitely informed. And then it says, but so it basically saying Festus believed Paul that he had done nothing wrong, but he didn't care. But he wanted to do the Jews a favor is what it says here. But Je Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Basically, do you wish to stay in jail longer while I decide what to do because I'm clueless? I don't know what to do. I mean, Paul even says in verse 10, if you read ahead there, that he has done nothing wrong. He says it again. And then he says to Festus, as you yourself know very well. And then Festus doesn't deny that. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, wait a second, Paul. I'm not so sure about this case yet. He says, or Paul says that I've done nothing wrong. And, you have, and then it just rolls on. He, he knows that Festus is in a tough spot because he wants to do the Jews a favor. But he also knows the truth. And I don't think I'm telling you something you don't already know. But we see this in politics all over the place, even today. Probably more so. Or it's at least more visible today. Someone knows the right thing to do, but it would be beneficial to them in some way to do it a different way. We see it in business. We see it in schools. We see it in jobs. We see it everywhere that people know the right way to go, but they either have pressure from outside sources or they simply want to benefit themselves in some way. So they go a different way. However, this is a legal matter. A man's life hangs in a balance. This is not a parking ticket that we want to do someone a favor. Okay, you know what? You've had a rough day. I understand you were only in there for a few minutes. I'm going to let you go. This is a man's life. They want to condemn Paul to death. And he's saying, well, maybe if I do the Jews a favor, it will help me out. A man's life hangs in the balance. And he can't bring himself to go either way. He can't bring himself to condemn Paul because he does know he's done nothing wrong. But he also doesn't want to infuriate this whole crowd of people or this whole sect of people because he knows that's not going to go well politically. We see this exact scenario play out with Jesus. He was basically charged with all of the same things Paul was charged with. Pilate knew he was innocent. He tried to tell the people over and over, look, I found nothing wrong with this man. Why are you doing this? Nothing, he has done nothing wrong. He tries to let Jesus go. The crowd won't let him, so they, they take Barabbas instead. And then when he can't go any further, he can't let Jesus go, but he can't suppress the crowd enough to go against them. He says, I will wash my hands of this. My hands are clean of this man's blood, which we know not to be true. But he thinks 
somehow in his mind he is justified that if he says, this isn't me, this is on you guys, that it's all okay. But we see this outside of politics as well. People know what is right, but they care too much about the perception of themselves than the truth. We see this with Muslim people all the time. They've been confronted with the truth of the gospel. They even believe it to be true, but because they cannot shame their family because they have been brought up that way for their entire lives, they cannot go against it. They just keep going with what they have done, even though they know that there is more truth out there. But you see, Festus, was, he was almost persuaded. He really wants to let Paul go. We see as we keep reading, uh, as he talks to King Agrippa who shows up, that he, he has nothing to write in his report. He says it twice. He says, I have nothing to write. Maybe you can find something for me to write because we're going to send him back to Jerusalem to meet a, a in front of Caesar like he has asked. But I have nothing to write to Caesar. I don't even know what cha chapter 25, verses 25 and 26, it says, But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him back, a.k.a. I had no clue what to do, and I thought, hey, I'll just pass the buck and send him somewhere else, and I don't have to do anything. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. He's basically saying to King Agrippa, who is the king of the Jews, and he's saying, maybe you can find something. Maybe I'm just missing something. Maybe if you examine him, you'll find something that we can write to the emperor. He was almost ready to put truth over politics. He was almost persuaded that truth and justice were more important than self-perception and power, but he couldn't let go. And again, almost persuaded is to be totally lost. He couldn't quite let go of this world and to put truth ahead of things in his own life. So from there, we're introduced to King Agrippa. Now until this point, Paul was being tried in front of Romans. This guy is the Jewish king. So I don't know what that changes at this point because it's gone so long and Paul has proven himself over and over that I'm not sure it matters anymore. But at least it is a change and Paul is happy about that change as we see uh, in scripture he says I'm glad I'm appearing before you King Agrippa but Ag Agrippa comes in with his wife who was also his sister she was he was her third husband she later cheats on him with another man and leaves him but they're the Jewish people upholding the law we see the first group of Jews that were upholding the law that wanted to kill Paul on his road back to Jerusalem and then we see this guy here who's I don't even want to go into the Jerry Springerness of his life, but he's married to his sister, and I, I don't even, the, the more I read about it as I was studying this week, I was like, I don't even want to talk about most of that stuff, because it was crazy. But there's the, there's the gist of it. Sister, third marriage, she ends up cheating on him again, and yet these are the people to uphold the law that Paul has supposedly broken. We see a pattern forming. But Agrippa comes in, Festus tells him the scoop, and then Agrippa says that he wants to hear the case he wants to hear from the Jews he wants to hear from Paul so he does he heard the case and he also sees no reason other than a dispute over a man named Jesus and his resurrection so again we see the key issue here is simply that Paul is saying that Jesus was resurrected we see that that is the, the key to all of this is that Paul will not balk on the fact that he believes Jesus to be the risen Messiah the risen Lord so he appears before Agrippa. Does anybody want to guess what he tells Agrippa? The gospel. 
He's there again to give defense for his life. And instead of doing that, he just gives his testimony one more time. He says, this is how I used to live. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And now because of Jesus, I am this way. It's kind of Paul's thing. It's kind of his motif, his MO, if you will say, want to say it that way. When he gets in front of people to give a defense for his life, he just tells his story and shares what Jesus has done. So Paul tells of his days before meeting Jesus. And then he says, when Jesus met me, he said that I am to be a witness. We see this in uh, chapter 26, verse 18. It says, I am to be a witness to the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. So this is what Paul was called to do by Jesus himself. And if nothing else, we can see that Paul has been faithful to this. We can attest that Paul has kept up his end. He's preached the gospel over and over again before he was in jail to just, just about anybody that would ever listen. He did not care what would happen to him. And now he's in front of governors, Jewish kings, in front of all of these people that he doesn't know how they're going to react to this gospel. He knows how the Jews have reacted, but he doesn't know how Festus and Felix and Agrippa are going to react. And yet it's the same message that it's been from the beginning. I was this. Jesus has made me this. And as we read on further, he lays out in blatant detail that this has been the message from before Paul was even alive. This has been what the prophets have been saying. Read with me verses 19 through 23. It says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So we just looked at that. Paul has been very obedient to what Jesus put forth for him to do. But declared first to those in Damascus, which is where he was going, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. There's the gospel again. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So again, he's giving God all the credit that he is even still alive. But I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul lays out that this is what the prophets have been saying all along, that the Messiah would come and that he would die and he would be raised again. He would be the first to be raised. And the thing is, is he knows Agrippa, being Jewish, knows all of these things. So he says in the next verse, and he was saying these things, and Festus gets mad and tells him that he's losing his mind. And he says, oh, I'm not losing my mind. I'm speaking very rationally. And King Agrippa knows that I am speaking the truth. And he calls for a response from King Agrippa. He says, don't you believe the prophets? We see that in verse, I lost my place, 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. He knows, Paul knows, he's very shrewd here. He knows that this puts Agrippa in a really tough spot. Because he is Jewish, Agrippa cannot deny what the prophets have said because that would be blasphemy to say that the scriptures from old are false. But he also cannot say that Paul was right, that the prophets were prophesying about Jesus because then the Jews would want to kill him as well because that's exactly what they want to kill Paul for. So Agrippa answers with a question. Instead of answering the question with a yes or no, which is what Paul wanted, do you believe the prophets? It's a yes or no question. Do you believe that this is who they were speaking of? Do you believe that this is what they said? Agrippa answers with a question and says, 
are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to do. But not only that, he says in the next verse, whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am except for these chains. He wants every, not just King Agrippa, not just Festus, but all the Jews listening, anybody that may have wandered up to hear these things, he wants everyone to be persuaded to follow Jesus. It seems in this exchange that Agrippa was like the rest of the characters and almost persuaded. He didn't deny Paul. He didn't say, no, I don't believe what you believe. He didn't say, no, Jesus isn't who you say he is. He simply asked him a question and then sent Paul away. But Paul wanted everyone in his earshot to believe. He was willing to go to prison for it, which he did over and over again. He was willing to suffer afflictions for it, which he did over and over again. And he was willing to die for it, which, if you read extra biblically, is exactly what happened. But the reason for this zeal was not just that Paul was Paul. He had seen Jesus, and he now valued him above all else, above the law, above these rules, above regulations, because he knew it was Jesus that could transform he knew it was Jesus that could change hearts and lives. See, the beauty of this is he did not see his trials and his imprisonment as punishment. He didn't just go there and wait out his time in jail, rotting away. He saw it as an opportunity. He didn't act like he was kicked out of Jerusalem. He acted as if he was sent out of Jerusalem. He wasn't a prisoner, but a missionary. He didn't just sit in his jail cell watching TV all day or whatever they do. He was a missionary, whether it was to the guards, whether it was to the Jewish king, or anywhere in between. He was sent there for a purpose, and his job and his calling was to proclaim the gospel to anyone that would hear. And if you put me in jail, there's at least a guard I can talk to about Jesus. There's someone in Paul's midst that he is going to share the gospel with. And this is what we are called to do. We are called to proclaim the gospel to wherever we are exiled. And I say exiled. Our jobs, our schools, our families, our friends, whoever God has put in our life, whatever reason we're there, it does not matter if we meant to be there or not. Paul didn't mean to go to prison. He wasn't like, woohoo, I get to go to jail again. But while he was there, he's going to share the gospel. Well, guess what? A lot of us aren't like, woohoo, I get to go to work tomorrow. And yet, people are there. People that need Jesus are there. So wherever you are exiled, this is who you are to witness to. This is who you are to pray, proclaim the gospel to. And I believe this is what Paul would say to us today. If he was standing in the midst of us today, if he was preaching instead of me, I believe he would say, don't be almost persuaded. Because to be almost persuaded is to be totally lost. To the non-believer, he would beg you, if you were in this room, to believe the gospel. Stop trying to earn your way to heaven. Stop thinking that if you just keep trying hard enough that God is going to show you some favor. If, be persuaded of the sufficiency of Christ and his sufferings. Be persuaded that you have sinned and that you're in need of someone who can take those sins away. Be persuaded that you cannot do this yourself no matter how hard you try. Be persuaded that Jesus came to this earth, both God and man, lived a perfect life, suffered the death that you deserved on a cross, and was raised three days later so that we might be given his righteousness in place of our sinfulness by putting our faith in him. Don't leave here today almost persuaded. If you have questions about that, don't leave here today without asking me or someone in this place. However, I believe he would also say if you are a believer in this place, so Paul had a message for us as well. 
he would say the same thing. Don't leave here almost persuaded. Too many times we are not convinced that the gospel can still save people. We need to be convinced that Jesus is enough no matter what circumstances we are facing, no matter what we do or don't have. Jesus is enough. We need to be fully persuaded that Jesus can and does truly forgive sins, that he can really use us in that process no matter who we are, no matter what our past says, no matter what we have done or not done. We need to be persuaded that Jesus can and does forgive. We need to be persuaded that Jesus really is the best thing that we have found. He really is better than the sins that continue to spike up and continue to tempt us. Not that the sins are not tempting. Not that they're not fun or enjoyable. If they weren't, they wouldn't be that tempting to do. But that Jesus is better. That the life that he offers, that he really does offer a better life, than the empty promises that the world makes and doesn't keep. We need to be persuaded that Jesus is worthy of all of our praise. He's worthy of all of our worship. He is worthy of us telling others how they can be saved and that he is worthy of our lives. We must be persuaded that it is worth our time and our energy to share this message with others because it can change people. Paul did, and it's not like the Jewish people were the poster child for quick open-mindedness and quick change. We see over and over again that they were not open-minded about change. They did not change quickly. And yet Paul believed that if the power of the gospel can save him, then it can save anyone. But we assume the opposite many times. We've said this over and over since mission churches started. Don't say, don't say no for someone else. Don't assume that someone isn't interested in what you have to say about Jesus. We look at people and go, look at those sinners sinning over there. They wouldn't want to hear about Jesus. How stupid is that? Of course they're sinning. They have no reason not to sin. So for us to look at people and be like, oh, they're sinners. They're, they're doing this. They wouldn't be interested. Yeah, that's exactly what we were doing before Jesus as well. And yet here we are believing in Jesus right now because someone shared the gospel with us. So don't say no for other people. We must not let opportunities pass us by. We must not separate our lives into sacred and secular time. Paul didn't do this. Paul didn't go, well, I had a sacred calling to proclaim the gospel, but now I'm in jail, so this isn't really God's time anymore. I'm just going to sit here and pout. We can't separate those two things, sec sacred and secular time. A lot of you guys know uh, my past. Some of you know more of it than I care for you to know, but we won't go into that either. But I used to listen to, like, hardcore rap music. I know it's weird for me to even bring that up. But guess what time I didn't listen to it? On the way to church. Now, I might still be drunk from the night before, but doggone it, I'm going to church. I'm not listening to this rap music. It's, it's Satan. It's sin. I'm not going to listen to it. Now, as soon as I'd leave church, the real Slim Shady was standing back up. I was remembering about Dre, all of those things. I was, I was listening to whatever I wanted to listen to. Because I had done my time with God, I had given God his time, and now it was my time again. So I could go do whatever I wanted. I had separated my life into compartments. Sunday morning was church time. Got that done. Now it's my time again. See, Paul could have been in jail pouting, crying, whining, all of these things. But instead, he said, all of this is God's time. God has me here for whatever reason. I'm going to use this time as he has called me to use it. I am going to share the gospel. 
he is not compartmentalizing his time, and we must be ready and willing to share the gospel at all times. doesn't matter where we are. The opportunities may arise at a gas station. The opportunities may arise at your work. The opportunities may arise somewhere you don't even normally go. You don't know why you even went to this store, and yet someone's coming up to you, and you can share the gospel with them. Let me tell you about it. I'm kind of glad Brian Lewis isn't here today because he's my boss, and he might not enjoy the story. But time that I failed at this was Wednesday afternoon of this week. So I don't want you to think that your pastor is up here trying to be perfect and oh this happened years ago I'm much better now this was four days ago Wednesday afternoon I was leaving the Hope House where I work now their philosophy on helping people is I'm just going to read it straight from their website so I don't even mess it up Hope House exists to alleviate physical and spiritual poverty through gospel restoration it's more more about giving them the gospel than giving them food or giving them a place to stay or giving them money. Not that they don't do that, but they want to accompany, the gospel, or accompany that with the gospel. It is through gospel restoration because they believe that poverty is not just not having stuff. It is a broken relationship with God. It is a broken relationship with others. It is a broken relationship with ourselves and a broken relationship with this world. So it gives them a chance to share the gospel when they are giving out free food, they're giving out a bed, or giving out furniture, or teaching someone how to get a job, or all of these things. So I'm leaving that place, <laughs> the place that believes all of those things I just said, and this guy approaches me and asks me for 50 cents for a drink. I don't know what kind of drink he meant. That's none of my business. It didn't see, he didn't say a beer, but he said, could I, man, can I have 50 cents? He didn't have a shirt on. He didn't look completely sober, but he wasn't stumbling either. He was just kind of living life. And I want to remind you one more time. I'm leaving the Hope House where they don't just give out stuff. They want to give the gospel with it, okay? I just want to remind you of that. And I said, yeah, man, no problem. So I, reached, I don't ever carry cash, but I have change in my car somehow all the time. I don't know how that even works. But, so I reach in to give him the 50 cents he'd asked for. It pops in my head. You know, I should probably share the gospel with this guy while he's standing right here in front of me. But instead of that, because I, I said no for him because he seemed to be intoxicated with something and I was in a hurry and all these things, I said, I'll just give him a dollar instead of 50 cents. Maybe this extra 50 cents will speak Jesus into his life because I didn't have to give him a dollar. He only asked for 50 cents. Maybe this extra money will make up for my lack of gospel-centeredness. So I looked at this man, and I didn't say these things verbally. I looked at this man who had no shirt on, who was seemingly under the influence of something, and assumed that a sinner who was sinning would have nothing to do with Jesus. He wouldn't want to hear what I had to say. I said no for him. And if you think about it, he's clearly homeless. If you had seen him, you would understand that he's homeless. He might as well have walked up to me and said, please tell me about Jesus. I'm asking for 50 cents, but I'm lonely. I have nowhere to turn. This world has made me promises that it has not kept. I have looked for fulfillment in places that I have not found it. I'm reaching out to anyone for 50 cents, but I want them to tell me something that will change, that will tell me why this is not working, why, why if I keep trying this over and over and over again, I think things are going to be different, and they're not. Please, Tell me something. Please do something. I am asking for some change, but what I really want is to be changed. And in my hands, I have the answer to that change. 
I have the words that transform. I have the message that saved. And I offered him 50 extra cents. So I got in my car and I left. And all I could do was pray that someone, he would ask somebody else for change later that day and that they would have enough guts to share the gospel with him. That they would offer him living water instead of money for a Coke or that he, they would offer him the bread of life instead of change for a snack. But I didn't because I was not ready at all times. I was not gospel-centered enough on that day. I was in a hurry. I already had in my mind, I had already checked off work and I was going elsewhere. I was going to a cookout for church that night, which is way more important than sharing the gospel with a random guy, right? Eating some burgers, hanging out, meeting new people. It's much better than sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, right? Apparently that day it was. But it wasn't a total loss. And I don't want y'all to think this story's going to end with he showed up the next day, I shared the gospel with him, now he's a pastor of a mega church. None of that happened. I haven't seen him since. All I can do is hope and pray that God will save him. But we had a meeting on Friday with some guys that had volunteered to help us with this new ministry that we've got going on. And as we were all getting to know each other, there was four, six of us in the room, five of us in the room. We were telling kind of some of our past, not in grave detail, but we were telling, you know, how God had saved us um, and changed our lives. And one of the guys in there, he's about 55, 60 years old, he says, that's what I want, what you guys are talking about. I thought we were in a meeting with Christians because they're volunteering at the Hope House to help us with this ministry of substance abuse and addiction. And he may be, that's not for me to decide, but he said, that's what I want. I want that spiritual awakening that you guys are talking about. And he kept saying it, I want that spiritual awakening. And because I had just passed up an opportunity to do this a few days earlier, I was like, oh, I'm not messing this one up. I'm not telling two stories of failure on Sunday. So I asked him, what, what exactly do you mean by spiritual awakening? What, what do you mean when you say that? And he kept saying things like, well, I want to change. And so I go to church and I try to live a Christian life, but it's hard. I've been sober for 21 years. I don't do that anymore, but it's just hard. I try to live a Christian life. I try to help other people. I try to do this, I try to do that. And I, I said to him, well, it sounds like you're still thinking that if you live the Christian life, that God will somehow show you some favor, that you're still trying to earn his favor in some way, that if you do just enough, that he will do his part and change your life or save you or whatever it is. And he said, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like I have to make up for my past. And I looked at him and said, brother, that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, give me all of that, all of the past, and I will take it to the cross. And I will in exchange, if you put your faith in me for that, I will give you my righteousness. It's a free gift. You are trading, <laughs> this is an awful trade on Jesus' part to get sinfulness for righteousness, and yet that is what he offers. So as a group, we gathered around this man. We encouraged him. We all shared the gospel with him in, in one form or fashion or the other. And I, I don't know where he stands today. He's still going to volunteer. We're just, I'm still going to run into this man over and over and over and over again so we can still follow up we can talk to him again I don't know where he stands today but I do know that he heard the gospel this time I was more persuaded that God could save him I was more persuaded that he was willing to listen because we were in a setting that seemed like he would listen to the gospel he's in a ministry that is for sharing the gospel he knew coming in the door what he's, it's kind of like you're not surprised when I say the name Jesus when you come to church it's because we're in that mentality. I had left that mentality on Wednesday. 
and I had blocked it out. I was not ready at all times. I apparently thought that this guy was a better candidate for salvation than the other guy. And may we never be okay with thinking that. May we never think, well, that guy's good enough to hear the gospel. He seems to have his life together good enough to hear the gospel. I'll share it with them, but I won't share it with him. I'll just give him some change. Being almost persuaded is to be totally lost. So may we be fully persuaded so that others may be also. So as we go from this place, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to pray for us. That's not really that different. I do that all the time. But I'm going to pray specifically, and I really want you guys to join me in this prayer. And before I pray, I'm going to tell you what it is so that you, if you're not ready to pray this, then you need to pray that God will make you ready to pray this, if that makes sense. But I'm going to ask God to present us with real, obvious opportunities to share the gospel and that we would recognize him. Because the truth is we probably all had hundreds this week and we just didn't recognize them because we're too dense or we're too in a hurry or too busy or something. And we just, that's not what that was. And we've convinced ourselves to go on that way. And that's me too. I have one specific example. There's probably hundreds of other examples I could have used if I even noticed that it was a time to share the gospel that I passed up on. So I'm going to pray that not only the opportunities would arise, but that we would recognize those opportunities. And then I'm going to pray that he would give us the gumption to do it, that we would be totally persuaded that the gospel works, that Jesus saves, and that he can use us in that process. And this is a scary prayer with consequences because God will answer this. I can guarantee you, I can't promise you if you pray for a Lamborghini hard enough, he's going to give that to you. I'm not saying he won't. You can try it out. But I can promise you he's going to give us this prayer. He is going to give us opportunities to share the gospel because that is our calling. That is why we've been saved. That is why he came to this earth so we could tell people about him. So I want us to be totally persuaded. So again, I want you to pray. I'm going to pray out loud. I want you to pray silently with me that God, that God would give you the opportunities to share the gospel and that you would recognize them and take them. If you are not ready to pray that prayer, one, I would love to talk to you about why afterward. Please feel free to come talk to me. But if you're not ready to pray that prayer, I want you to pray that God would make you ready to pray that prayer. That God would change your heart. That you would not be so hard-hearted against people. That you would not be so oblivious to these opportunities. Because I think that's a lot of it. I don't know, I don't think a lot of the people in this room or that are even normally in this room, are like, nah, I'm just not going to share the gospel. I think they really just don't see the opportunities that God puts in front of them. So I'm going to pray for both. And I just pray that we would leave here totally persuaded that it'll work, that the gospel can save the worst of sinners, the people that look the worst, that look like they are so far from God, they don't care about anything we have to say. The gospel can save those people. Look at Paul. Look at me. And look at some of you. I don't know everybody's story in here. But we were sinners who were sinning. And yet God stepped in and Jesus saved us. So if you would, before I'm going to pray and we'll do the rest of worship as well. If you would, stand with me. And I'm, I'm going to fervently pray that God would give us these opportunities. Because as we move from here to Briarwood, we're going to meet new people. Uh, we have been praying and are going to continue to pray that God would send us people that we have not met from that neighborhood and from wherever. But that God was, and we're going to meet people that are in many, many different circumstances. 
Um, if you look at that neighborhood, you got people that are probably on food stamps and welfare and people that live in a few hundred thousand dollar homes. And we're going to meet people in all of those areas and in between. And if we're not fully persuaded that the gospel can save, we're not going to tell them anything about Jesus. We're just going to hope they come to our church and tithe or serve or that we can make some new friends. And while all that's okay, that's not what we exist for. We exist so lost people can meet Jesus. So let's pray. Father, uh, I come to you first and foremost praising your name that you are the God who saves, that it is in your hands that we don't have to save anyone because we're really terrible at it. I also want to begin by asking for forgiveness specifically for myself for the times that I miss these opportunities or the times that I look them square in the eye, know they're an opportunity and don't do it. I pray you would forgive me. I pray you would convict my heart. I pray that you would change my heart and everyone in here's heart to be willing to share the gospel at all times. I pray that I would run into that homeless man again. And I pray this time I would give him more than a dollar. I pray that you would bring people into our lives individually and corporately as a church that we can love on, that we can show the love of Christ to and the foremost showing of that, that love is by sharing the gospel with them. The gospel is not meant to send people to hell. It is t to say that if you're going to hell, you're going to have to jump over us first. You're going to have to jump over this message first. So you are going to hear that Jesus can save you from your sin. And I pray this week specifically that you would give all of us in this room, every single person, opportunities to share this message, that we would recognize them, that we would see them as opportunities to share this message, that we would hear what people are truly saying and truly asking for when they ask us for change or when they ask us for this or when they, they say these things, that we would not just offer them some pithy advice or some Dr. Philism that's going to help them, but that we would tell them, well, you know what? I can tell you who... I can't promise you your life will be better, but I can promise you who can change your circumstance. He can transform your heart to see things in a different way. And He can save you. He can change you from the inside because He has changed me. May we be like Paul and understand that all time is your time. There is no sacred and secular time. There is simply God's time. There is your time. And if we would view all time that way, we wouldn't pass up these opportunities. We wouldn't be in too big of a hurry to share the gospel. We wouldn't be in too big of a hurry or too busy or too distracted by the things of this world to tell someone about Jesus. We love you, God. We love that you offer forgiveness when we do fail at this. We love that, that you... Don't just push us out and say, well, that was your chance. But that you lovingly convict us of it. That you would lovingly bring it to our attention so that we may change to be more like you. 
We thank you that you are forgiving. We thank you that you show us much grace because we are in much need of it. May we, we, may we be readily or ready to admit that we need your grace every single day so that we can show others that they can also receive this grace. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this time. May we truly worship you as we sing these songs. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.